We are gonna, we're going to be all over the place this morning, but um, there's a big passage that we're going to read in Ezekiel, so we'll take the time to turn there together. Okay, we'll see. If I, can, if I can talk long enough, we'll actually get through this, but part two might come next week, apparently. Um, yes. If you are visiting, welcome here. Um, what we've been going through the last couple of weeks here that we just recently started is a series, uh, seven weeks, through seven really crucial and important matters of doctrine, so theology, what we believe, and why we believe it. The reason this came out, um, this series came out of my mind, is previously we spent a few months going through the letter of 1 John. And John warns the people in in his writings there that there's a group that have left the church because they've left their understanding of the gospel. What they heard and what they initially said they believed uh, and confessed, they added things to it and turned away from what was true and what was right. And John writes this letter to warn those left in the church, don't depart from the message of the gospel. Don't change it. Don't twist it. Don't do anything that will compromise the integrity of the gospel. And so as I was kind of considering that, as we were finishing through 1 John and realizing a number of things that were going on in my head, was one of the questions that I've been asked so often is about what issues, what theological things are really important that we believe. All of us probably, I assume, have friends that attend different churches or family members that attend different churches uh, and, and have some slightly different beliefs than we do, or than you do, I should say. And so the question then comes to is, is what some of these differences, are they important? Or are some of these things very minor issues that we don't need to worry about? And while there are many, many minor issues that we certainly don't need to lose uh, fellowship over or friendship there are some really core essentials that we need to hold if we're going to serve the one true God. And so that's where this series started out of. And so we started the first week with Scripture. Um, if you go to the AGC of Canada website, so the AGC is Associated Gospel Churches of Canada. That's who we belong to as a church. On their website, if you go under um, Statement of Faith, you'll find these seven core things that we, had ho we hold to. And so scriptures is right at the top. And we talked a couple of weeks ago about how uh, we believe it to be fully um, authentic. We believe that it's without error that God has written these words through various people that he inspired uh, to give us what we have and it is sufficient. And most importantly, that it holds authority over our whole lives. So anything that we believe comes because it teaches it in this book. And that's the center, that's the starting place. And we're going to talk about that again in a moment here and why that's important. The second week, we then moved into uh, a more broader concept of God. Specifically, we dealt with the Father, Son, and Spirit and why three persons in one being is so important and why we need to hold to that. And you can go back and listen to that, uh, but th the essence of it is this, is God revealed himself this way and has shown himself to us in this way. And so even though it might be difficult for us to understand, 
if we're going to be ambassadors of God, we have to declare who he is the way that he has told us who he is, not who we think he is. And so we hold to those teachings. And of course, you can go back there. And then uh, now this morning, that brings us to our next topic. But as um, I was meeting with Lee, actually our elder uh, here, we were having a meeting this week and we were discussing various things. And during the course of that discussion, I was reminded of something, is that if this series is about information only and about knowledge only, then it's a waste of time. We could sit here all day and we could talk to you about why we believe these seven things are of vital importance, but if we don't internalize them, and if they don't change the way that we see Scripture, the way we see ourselves, and the way that we see other people, if it doesn't have a practical, tangible aspect tied to it, then we've missed the whole point of it. And so this isn't meant to just be, here's things that are important. It's, here's things that are important, and here's why they're important. That they would shape us, and that we would understand that there's differences in, in Christianity, yes, and we can, we can deal with those differences, but there are some core essentials that we will hold to because it changes the way that we view God. So one of those things is, if you go to our website, so banffparkchurch.com, and you look at our core values, there's a statement there that's written slightly differently about the scriptures, and, and I really like how it's written. It says this. We particularly value Bible-centered, Christ-exalting preaching and teaching. We read and study the Word of God together as a body, in small groups, and personally, so that we may better understand, delight in, and obey our God, and so come to maturity as followers of Jesus. It's not just about knowledge, but it's about obedience, and, and also it's about delight. Is the more we understand and know who God is, that should change the way that we look at it so that it becomes more exciting that we get to worship God, that we get to sing his praises, that we get to open scripture. Just this past week for a seminary class, I was doing some reading on habits, uh, a book called Habits of Grace. And one of the kind of the side parts that the author is talking about is as we read through scripture is lingering over it, considering it and just sitting there and allowing those words to impact our hearts and for us to understand that the God who created everything wrote these down that we would know who he is. Just to slow down a minute, these are not just words on a page. And for some of us who have grown up in the church or, or been part of the church for a long time, this idea of the Bible is maybe just such a, sec, uh, just a normal thing that we forget that this is God's spoken word to us. And so that's why we're going to always make sure that every aspect of our theology goes back to what is spoken at here. So, this week we're going to talk about uh, a different issue. Is it up there yet? No, don't put it up there yet. This is, this is an interesting one, because when you, if you go to the AGC website and you look at the seven, you kind of read through them, and you're like, yeah, yeah, and then number three hits, and you're kind of like, this is weird. Why, is, why do we have a statement about this, and why is this included in one of the seven essential beliefs of the AGC? So the issue that we're going to look at this morning is angels. Why is it important that we have a statement on angels? And so we're going to discuss it. So again, I remind you to turn to Ezekiel 28. And while you're doing that, I just want to pray and take uh, some time to commit this, uh, these next moments to God. So God, as we explore your word, as we would consider why these things are important would you give us a really good biblical understanding of this topic? 
as we consider the implications in our lives, would you reveal truth to us as we read it? Would you open our hearts and our minds that we would understand it, that it would not just be an intellectual understanding, but something that changes the way that we want to live and how we want to treat others around us? So God, give us wisdom as we open this now. Amen. So why do we have a statement on angels? Well, I'm going to simplify this a little bit. Is at the very heart, if we believe that Satan exists, and I don't know how you can read Scripture and think that he is not real, so we'll look at that in a minute, but as we look through Scripture and we see uh, references to Satan, to angels, to demons, these various things, is if we believe that he exists then we need to have a statement uh, on it because this is where it's kind of like the understanding of the source of like good and evil. Is if there's evil in the world, we need to deal with that. And we're going to deal with mankind next week, so we're going to look at kind of the depravity of man, our own hearts, how we've sinned. But we also need to consider this idea of how did an angel, if Scripture, as we're going to read it, if Scripture is true, how did an angel fall out of graces with God and get taken out of heaven? How could that happen? Why would that be? And then now why is he after us? Why is he trying to discourage and lie and trick and essentially pull as many people down as he can with him? If we believe there's a spiritual battle, which again, we're going to read those scripture passages that, that say that, then we need to realize that there's good versus evil in the heavenly realms. And so where did that come from? And, and how do we make a statement about that? We, we can't ignore that. For someone who is, is new in their faith or, or perhaps just right on the cusp of, I think I need Jesus, is if we ignore the idea of evil, if we ignore the idea of Satan and judgment and some of those things, we don't give them a complete picture of the gospel. We just give them a part. So this is why it's so important. So here's the statement, and April, you can put it on the screen, and I'll, I'll read it for us here. It says this, God created angels for his glory and service. Some rebelled under the leadership of their fellow angel, Satan, and are opposed to God and his purposes. Though Satan is still active, he has been defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ and will be committed forever to the lake of fire with all the fallen angels. So we're going to unpack that a little bit at a time and, and just deal with some of this. So the first part of that was God created angels for his glory and his service. And so if you actually look at the statement, is that's the only actual positive part of the statement. The rest of it is all focusing on Satan. And I think the reason why the AGC did this is because their focus is meant to be on the person of Satan, evil, all those kinds of things. When we read through Scripture, and your minds will probably go to all kinds of different places where angels are talked about. Angels are created to worship and to serve God. You see all through the prophets, angels bowing down. You see in Isaiah where Isaiah is kind of lifted up and he experiences the glory of God. There's angels there worshiping and praising and calling out all the way through to Revelation when John has his vision and you see angels worshiping and calling, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. All through scripture you have angels who have been created to serve and to honor God, to bring him glory. And then of course they're also used as messengers. We see that in various places. The, the most kind of familiar one, I guess, is when we think of the Christmas season, right? Because we go through this text every year, 
is we have uh, Mary and we have Joseph, and an angel appears to both of them, right, separately at different times to declare God's message, to say, here's what's happening. And of course, all through Scripture, angels uh, appear and, and speak to people in, in various ways. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here on this God created angels for his glory and service because it's just all found throughout Scripture. But I do want to give you two verses that just kind of show this. His one is in Hebrews chapter 1. If you remember the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 1, uh, the first chapter is all about the superiority of Christ. So whether the people that the writer of Hebrews is writing this to, whether they were actively worshiping angels or whether they were saying that Jesus wasn't as powerful as angels or something, there's this clarification that starts to get made. And so the writer says this in verses 13 and 14. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So he's referencing that about Jesus. And then about angels, he says this. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Or Psalm 91.11, where it says this, for he will command, this is God, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. His angels exist to serve and to glorify God. Now the crazy part about this is this idea of the guardian angel that we've kind of thought of is that angels exist to serve God for our interests. I just think that's just a crazy thought. They're ministering servants that exist to glorify God, to serve God, but to help and to show us. And I just think that's incredible. That's just an amazing, amazing thought. Next part of the statement talks about the rebellion. The rebellion of some angels. We don't know how many. We don't know kind of uh, proportion, whether this is like 10%, 30%, 50%. We have no idea. Uh, and I don't really think that is all that important. But in Jude, uh, verse 6, Jude writes this. He says, The angels who did not stay with their own position of authority, but they left their proper dwelling, he has kept, that's God, God has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. So we see and, and we read in Jude that there are those who fell that did not stay where their own position of authority was, but they left their proper dwelling. But also what that verse tells us, and we're going to go back to this idea again, is that God is still in control over them and they have no authority over God. The unfortunate part is that when we think about Satan, when we think about the angels and when they fell and how this all works, is there's not just one chapter or one section of the Bible that just spells this out very plainly and very clearly for us. And again, this is one of those questions that you know, I kind of wonder about, but we can ask God when we get to heaven, I guess, if that is still important, which I kind of doubt it will be. But what we do see in Scripture, there are two passages, and so this Ezekiel one that we're going to read, and then there's another one in Isaiah, where there's uh, kind of a, a certain way of writing that's happening. So one thing that you'll notice all through the Bible is that there's these things that are prophecies for the nation of Israel, but also are ultimately pointing to Jesus. So you have kind of two parts to it. Uh, it's called like a dual prophecy. Is there's this that's happening right now with this people that's being prophesied about, but there's also images of what is going to be the actual complete fulfillment of that in the person of Jesus. That's all through Scripture. 
Well, in this way, it's kind of the reverse of that. Is in Ezekiel and Isaiah specifically, and there are other passages, but these two are very clear. Where we read and we see that it's talking about a person, or in Isaiah specifically, a nation, and yet it's tied back to the original fall of Satan and his own arrogance. And so we'll read this together, and you'll see this. This is Ezekiel 28. We'll start in verse 11 and go to 11 and 19. It says this, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, that's Ezekiel, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and then everyone's favorite, carbuncle. Just a funny word, sorry. And, cre- and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. Notice that. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned, so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out of your midst, and it consumed you. And I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. And so while you can see there's some human elements of this being talked about as the king of Tyre, uh, that Ezekiel is, is prophesying this over, you also see back to the original fall. And you see Satan, who is a beautiful, or was a beautiful angel. And what we understand in Scripture is, is he seems to have fallen in love with himself. And in his own arrogance, he wanted to be worshipped rather than God, and so God casts him down out of out of his presence onto the earth. And there are many other passages that we kind of read, but my point being for this is, as we consider that Satan was cast out of heaven for his own arrogance, we are reminded back of Genesis, where we read about the fall of man. And we're going to look at this next week specifically. But the same thing happens. Is they eat of the apple because they want to become like God. They don't listen to what God has said. In their own arrogance, they think they know better. And again, we'll talk about this at length next week, but that is exactly the struggle that we all have every day. We think we know better. When you're a child, you think you know you're better than your parents. When you're a teenager, you definitely think you know better than your parents. When you become your own parent, you realize, oh, well, now I know better than my parents because I'm now mature, right? And we always think this. And ultimately, we often say to God, maybe not in our words, but especially in our actions, is I know better. I'm going to do it my own way. 
So Satan is cast out of God's presence. The next part of our statement says two things. First, that Satan is active, and the second, that he has been defeated. And these are both very important points to this. So 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Peter warns this. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter warns us, be prepared. This is a spiritual battle that we are facing. He exists because he wants to devour you. He wants to destroy you. And so there's, there's two parts to this. He's active, but he's also been defeated. So we have to find this balance of understanding that if he's active and if Peter warns us that he is active and wants to devour us, we need to be aware of that. But we also need to be aware that he has been defeated. Ephesians 6, 10 to 12, Paul warns us this way. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of who? Of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There is a spiritual battle taking place Satan is out there trying to devour us, but we have been equipped. We have been given the answers. We have been given a way to protect, to defend ourselves so that he has no authority over us. Now, ultimately, Satan has been conquered because of Jesus' death and resurrection. The problem is that I think as Paul is warning the Ephesians, so we probably need to be warned often, is that our battle is not against the material. I've, I'm just going to speak for myself here. Is that I am often very easily distracted and my focus gets off of what is important and gets onto the material. And that thing becomes the enemy or that thing becomes the problem and I lose sight of the fact that ultimately all of these things are about spiritual warfare that's happening. Satan wants to discourage. He wants to, he's going to lie to us. He's going to want us to feel worthless or like a failure. Satan is actively trying to devour us. Now there's a passage that's really interesting in 2 Corinthians. I'm just going to flip there and, and you can follow along if you would like to as well in 2 Corinthians. Because the difficult thing is that Satan, while being someone who's trying to devour us, is he's doing it in a, actually a very crafty and cunning uh, kind of a way. And this is not new to us, but in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, verses 12 to 15, Paul writes this to the Corinthians. He says, And what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. It is Paul's warning them that it's not just obvious all the time when you're under attack. Sometimes we miss it because it is masquerading as something that it's not. And 
we think that it comes, oh, this is a good thing. We think this is maybe right or or even, and this is what's happening so much now in our world, is even that is a really good teaching about the Bible, but in actuality has nothing to do with Scripture and actually undermines the gospel, undermines Jesus' authority. And so we need to be aware. We need to fight. We need to recognize that there's a spiritual battle against us, that Satan is trying to devour us, and it's not just something super obvious that the lion is running after you. Sometimes it's very subtle, and we need to be aware of that. I, I talked a number of, of weeks ago in First John how Christians are supposed to be marked by their discernment. We are supposed to be able to spot the lie because we know the Word of God so well. So when someone comes to us and says, did you know the Bible teaches this and they tell us something, we know whether it's consistent with Scripture or whether it's inconsistent because we've read and we've studied and we've considered Now, the good news is that I said Satan is defeated on the cross. So here I want to quote from John Piper. He addresses this exact question. So he writes this. How is Satan defeated by the cross? Well, the lethal weapon of soul-destroying sin and guilt is taken out of Satan's hand. He is disarmed of the single weapon that can condemn us, unforgiven sin. We see this in 1 Corinthians 15, 55 to 57. O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what we see is, is again, from a spiritual sense, that Satan is defeated. And he holds no power over us because our sins have been forgiven on the cross. Jesus has extended that forgiveness to us. And if we accept and embrace that, then he can do nothing from a spiritual context. He cannot tell us that we're worthless because Jesus died on the cross for us. He cannot tell us that we're not good enough because we always weren't good enough. But Jesus is enough. Our focus, our understanding becomes central to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So why does Peter warn us? Because we live in a spiritual battle and because the physical is still a reality that we have to face. Paul in in Philippians, um, we read all about kind of his... He's nearing the end of his days. He recognizes that he's ultimately going to be killed or he thinks he's going to be killed anyway. And he starts to kind of talk about that. And what you see in him is is this idea of, you want to kill me? Go right ahead. I get to go be with Jesus. And that's better by far. Is yes, Satan can still attack the physical. Yes, our lives could still be brought to an end. But if we're found to be a Christian, if we're found that we have put our faith and trust in Jesus, then our death is actually just a promotion to something even greater. And so if we can look at it with that context so that we are way more focused on the spiritual and what God is doing in our lives, but we also recognize that he is active and he's trying to devour us. And so we need to find a balance there of recognizing, as Paul says, you've been given spiritual armor, so put on that armor and prepare yourself. Uh, J.C. Ryle, who I quoted a few weeks ago, uh, 18th century uh, Anglican preacher, talks about how important it is that we recognize every single morning that when we wake up, we're in a spiritual battle today. So let's put on the armor of God and prepare ourselves. We're not just going off to work. 
We're not just going off to school. We're not just going off to the adventure that we think we've planned for that day. We are entering into a spiritual warfare where Satan is wanting to devour us. So as we prepare ourselves for that, we, as in Ephesians 6, and I'll encourage you to read that again in, in a few moments, but as you read that and as you look through that, is recognize this is how we prepare ourselves for the battle that's in front of us today and tomorrow and the next day. He is active, but through the blood of Jesus on the cross, he has been defeated. The last part of the statement says this, that he'll be committed forever to the lake of fire with all the fallen angels. So everything else has already been accomplished. There's one thing yet to come. And when we go in Scripture and we read in Revelation, uh, we read all about the things that are yet to come. And in week seven of this series, we're going to talk about uh, the end times and, and some of those things. So I don't want to spend hardly any time here at all except to say this. In Revelation 20, verse 10, the things that are yet to come, John writes this, And the devil who, has de who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, that the beast and the false prophet, sorry, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tortured day and night forever and ever. In Matthew, Jesus says something similar, and he actually says that, the, that hell has been created for the angel and his demons, and at that time, he will be thrown into there, and he will be sealed in, locked forever. And so while Satan is on earth right now, while he does have some authority, and he is fighting and trying to devour us, is one day that will be completely done away with. And so some people will ask this idea of like, okay, but when, when we die, when the judgment happens and all of us go to heaven, what is preventing us from repeating the same cycle that happened in the Garden of Eden? The simple answer is in Revelation, it teaches us that Satan is going to be bound for all of eternity. He will not be there trying deceive any longer. We know that God has won. We know that Satan will be cast into hell. But I want to remind you of what Piper said one more time, is that Satan has no authority over you because he cannot condemn you for your sin. Because Jesus Christ offered himself for you. If you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, the devil has no power over you. What a great promise that is. And that's something that we can remind ourselves of over and over and over. So when you are feeling discouraged and beat down, is recognize you're in a spiritual battle and go in prayer to God. Read scripture and strengthen yourself because that's the battle that you're facing. When you're feeling like you can't do it, you're not enough, remind yourself you were never enough before. The reality is that Jesus is enough, and he will walk through this with you. And so you don't have to walk through it on your own. You can cling to the arms of Jesus. Remind yourself whenever you're feeling anything that is a lie, anything that is not true of God's word, is that we have an advocate in Jesus Christ, and he has won the battle. Let's pray. God, thank you for what we've read in Scripture here this morning. And God, is in a couple of weeks here as we look specifically at redemption, at salvation, what that means, and, and just 
going through all the scripture passages that point to Jesus being our Savior. God, we are so thankful for your plan of salvation. God, as we sometimes discuss difficult things like the origins of evil and where did Satan come from and why did he fall and all these things, may we go to scripture to try and formulate an understanding, not just something someone once said but that which we know you have revealed to us, that we would understand it and help us to place our faith in those things. Help us to place our faith in the reality that you have written all that we need to understand who you are and how to live this life. So we thank you for that. God, as we turn our thoughts and our minds uh, to communion now, we thank you so much that through the blood of Jesus Christ that Satan has no authority over us and he cannot condemn us because you have offered us forgiveness. And so God, for those who are here this morning that have made a commitment, that have chosen to make Jesus their Lord and their Savior, we celebrate that. We celebrate that they are forgiven and that they are desperately loved and you are holding on to them tightly and that you will not abandon them. God, for those in this room who maybe have not yet made a commitment to Jesus, help them to understand that the only, the only authority that can save us and forgive us comes from Jesus on the cross. God, we thank you so much for these words. We thank you so much for the encouragement of the cross, what it represents and what it means. Amen. So if you just want to flip to 1 Corinthians, and we're just going to read in chapter 11, this last supper this that's recorded for us, and again, this moment of Jesus' death on the cross and then his resurrection, these are pivotal in all of human history. And again, in two weeks, we'll talk about that exclusively. But the reminder for us is that as we read this text is that Jesus is commanding his disciples that they would constantly be drawn back in remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. We live in a world that is very busy and hectic and stressful and difficult and we can lose sight so easy and so we are to remind ourselves to draw us back to the cross over and over and over that we would never twist the gospel that we would never forget the gospel that it would always be about Jesus so every month we gather together and we read and so I'm just going to grab the elements here And so we read this every month together, and then we eat the bread, we drink the cup, and we, as the Scripture is going to remind us, we proclaim that Jesus is coming back again, and that he will make all things new. So 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So we are reminded, and, and maybe now more than ever, as you hold your package of crackers in your juice box, right? this is not a normal time that we find ourselves in, and we need that reminder all the more that God is still on the throne. That yes, there's difficulty and challenge with COVID and there's all kinds of stresses that come out of that, but God is still in control and our focus needs to be on him. Again, let's not lose focus. This is a spiritual battle that we face. And yes, there are things happening that affect our lives all the time, but when our focus becomes on that and not on Jesus, we lose sight. And so we come back to the cross. We come back to his body and his blood so that we remind ourselves over and over and over, this is salvation. This is who Jesus is. And if you're a Christian, then you are a son or a daughter of the king. You have been adopted into this family, and we need to remind ourselves of this often because it is too easy to get distracted. So I just want to pray for the bread, and then we will take that together. God, as we slow down right now, we want to evaluate our own hearts and our own minds. God, we know that we live in a life, or we live in a world that is very hectic and busy and filled with stresses and difficulties and pain. And it can be so easy for us to lose focus and to turn our eyes off of you and to focus on those things. And God, we know that we, we need you. And so in these moments right now, God, would we reorient our focus? Would we look back to the cross? Would we remind ourselves that you love us so desperately that Jesus was willing to sacrifice himself so that we might find forgiveness? God, it's in Jesus alone. And so may we focus there every day. May we wake up in the morning and recognize there is a war that's going on and it's competing for my attention and my affections. And may we focus back on Jesus every day. So this bread that we're about to eat together, God, we know it represents Jesus' body broken for us. Would we remain focused on that and not be distracted by all the other things that compete for our attention? God, we are so grateful that Jesus was willing to come to the cross. Thank you for your love for us. So let's eat in remembrance of all that he has done for us.
And God, as we now turn to the cup, which represents Jesus' blood poured out for us, would you constantly remind us that Jesus is enough? When Satan tries to discourage us, when he tries to make us feel like we're not enough, would we remind ourselves that that's true, but Jesus is enough. And he has shed his blood for us because his blood was perfect and could forgive our sins. So Satan has no power, no authority over us because you have offered us forgiveness through the blood of Jesus. So we say thank you for that. We thank you for the depth of your love for us. Amen. So let's drink this in remembrance of him. God, as we go back out into the world in these moments coming here, as we head off to our families, to our jobs, to our homes, again, may we not lose sight. May we not lose focus of what's truly most important. Help us to not rely on our own strength to make it through today and tomorrow and each day after, but help us to rely on your Holy Spirit whom you have given us God, we confess right here, right now, we are not good enough, but you are. You love us more desperately than we could ever understand, and for that we say thank you. And as we go, we want to keep our eyes fixed on you and fixed on the cross. Go with us today.